The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. I'm going to read the verse. We're going to read it again in a minute. Jesus, uh, again, Jesus spoke to them. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me or whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this starts off a whole big discussion. This discussion follows right on the heels of a lot of other things that is happening in the exact same place with the basically the exact same people, and that's within the temple with the leaders of the Jews. We just saw last week, uh, Pastor Colin taught on um, the woman caught in adultery. And it's in the same location, that is, within the temple, and specifically, uh, it's within uh, the area of the temple, which would be the treasury, which is beyond, which is almost to the inner sanctum, known as the court of the women. It was called this because you had to at least be an Israelite woman in order to, in order to continue into this sort of inner court of the temple, not the innermost court, but one of the inner courts, right before the innermost court. So... This is kind of a holy place. So when Jesus steps out and says, I am the light of the world within the temple, that's kind of scandalous. And we've seen this before where Jesus makes uh, statements within the very temple that would offend the leaders of the Jews. Um, We've seen the light of the world uh, spoken of before in John 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Um. Um, not far before this, we see in John 5, 30 through 45, uh, Jesus talks about the threefold witness and there's a lot of repetition. The threefold witness being Jesus uh, says that John the Baptist bears witness of him. His works bear witness of him. And then also the father bears witness of him. And we're going to see some of these themes repeated in this sermon. It's repetition. And this is a rabbinical sort of style. So rabbis often repeated themselves over and over again. And John repeats himself over and over again. And I struggled with preparing this sermon because what do I say new if a lot of it's repeated material? Am I going to preach another sermon again? But then I thought, you know, we shouldn't be bored by repetition. If God is going to repeat himself over and over again, that's how we learn, right? So don't ever be bored with repetition because that's part of how we learn and that's how we start to get it not only in our mind but also hopefully in our hearts. So we're going to go through this and we're going to look at the conflict over his witness, point number two, and I'll start again in uh, verse 12. Um, This is again in verse, this is in chapter 8, verse 12. I'm going to read right through verse 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, 
even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither my father, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught the people, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So again, so again Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And this is the insanity of, of, of claiming this begs the question, because as saying that you're the light of the world is like claiming that you're the source of all truth in the world. And that demands a little bit of proof. If you're standing in front of people and you say, I am the light of the world, they're going to say, prove it. But they say something else. They say, you bear, you're bearing witness of yourself in verse 13. And in a way, they're kind of calling him out because he himself had said this. He, in John uh, 5, 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So they say, ah, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They think they've caught him, but he said, I, if I alone bear witness about myself. But he goes on in that passage to say he doesn't need to bear witness of himself. All these other witnesses, John the Baptist, the miracles, the scriptures, all these different things. So he did a great job of proving himself. It didn't really stick with them. There are going to be times when we try to prove the Bible is true and that Jesus Christ is the, is the Messiah and people are simply not going to believe no matter what kind of proof we give them. And we're going to talk about that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the phoniness of witnessing of yourself is obvious. Anybody can say that they are the Messiah. And many people in our culture have claimed to be the Messiah or a type of Messiah. We have the cult leaders, obviously, David Koresh and, you know, Charles uh, 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 Manson, or wh whoever it is, right? And then there are, like, functional messiahs, political leaders that everybody looks to as the new answer or whatever, right? But it's phony if it's just based on yourself. But Jesus goes on in verse 14 through 20 to offer three things that qualify him to bear witness of himself. Okay? And we're going to go through that. Verse 14, the first one, is that he can bear witness of himself because he is from heaven. Not long before this, well, 30 years before this, he, before he was incarnate, he was looking down from heaven, about to come to earth. He can testify as to his real identity because he was in heaven before he was even born here on earth. But what do they think about him? Okay, they think that he's somebody from Galilee. But he says he knows where he is from and he knows where he is going. In John, we saw a little bit of this before in John 33 through 34. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and where I am going uh, I, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Right? John seven twenty seven. that was said in response to, we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. So they think they're assuming all these things. 
right? People assume all these things. And I said this last time I preached. People have an idea and a concept of Jesus that isn't based on the word of God. And it's not based on the testimony of the spirit either. People think they know Jesus, but they don't. Jesus says, I'm from heaven. And they're thinking this is a rabbi from Galilee. He wasn't even from Galilee, right? In a sense, he was actually from Bethlehem. If they would have known that, that might have changed their thinking a little bit because of the prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Verse 15 through 16, the second reason. The second reason Jesus is qualified to bear witness of himself. They judge according to the flesh, but he judges according to the Father, what the Father judges. Okay? So we look at this reason, and this reason is again something that they're not they're not going to accept because they don't, they don't, they don't believe that, Jesus, that God is their father. John, wh- why is this? When we're looking at this discussion, you know, some of these arguments may not seem particularly convincing, right? Uh, someone in the Bible study this morning said, I don't see the logic in this. This seems like just the logic of these, artic- uh, the, these arguments is, is, is obviously going to be lost on them and perhaps even lost on us. And I was like, good, I'm not crazy. These arguments are difficult to follow. John 3, 9 through 10, 9, 19 through 20. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So they're not, they're not seeing that Jesus' judgment, even if he does judge, is, is, uh, is, he is qualified to make these judgments because he's judging just as the Father judges. He's the Son of God. Verse 17 through 20, the final reason that Jesus gives for his qualifications. The Father bears witness of me, he says. How does the Father bear witness? Well, back in John uh, 5, 37 through 39, when he said this before. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. They had searched the scriptures. They knew the scriptures so well. They would have known the entire Old Testament. They would have memorized the entire Torah. They knew it forwards and backwards, and yet they were standing right in front of their Messiah, and they didn't recognize him. Why? They didn't have his word abiding in them. They had it in the mind, but they didn't have it in their hearts. They have to have it in their soul. You have to have it in your soul in order to see the Messiah. What's the soul? The mind, will, and the emotions. What's the mind? They had the mind part. What's the will? The will is walking it out. Your will is completely taken up with the will of the Father and obeying what the scriptures tell you to obey. And what is the emotions? Your, your affections are completely and wholly focused on him. There were those who eventually recognized the Messiah, but it wasn't these people. Why? Because the word of God was not abiding in them. So those are the three things. Some of it's a little difficult to follow, but I did the best that I could to explain it. And we're going to go on 
And we're going to see this kind of the bit, almost the same conversation repeated over again in verse 21 through 30. So I'm going to read that now. Verse 21 through 30. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just, just what I have te- been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So in verse 24, I want to just bring a couple of things out of this passage rather than going verse by verse. Verse 24, Jesus now reveals what he means by the light of the world. He says plainly, I am he. And then he says plainly, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He told them? When did he told, tell them? John three, eighteen. Whoever believes in him, who, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So he's told them this before. And now he's getting a little bit more serious, a little bit more pointed. And it looks a little bit insensitive. I told you, you would die in your sins, right? It's a little, it's a little strong. It sounds a little harsh but jesus has been speaking with these people for a while now he's got almost like a relationship with these people he's been in the temple teaching for a long time and now it's time to get a little bit more serious it's time to be blunt with the truth so that these people understand the gravity of what he's trying to explain to them there's a time for us to get real with people as well and jesus is our example of that in verse 28 He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. They will know. What does it mean, lift up? The word there, the Greek word is hupsao. If I'm pronouncing that right, I don't know. It sounded like that's what the blue letter Bible was trying to articulate. Hupsao. It means literally to lift up. And many times that term also had a connotation in certain contexts of exalting, exalting. If somebody got a promotion or somebody was moved from a commoner to a royal person or from a low-level person to a, to a ruler, they were hupsao, lifted up. Is that what that means? Well, we have a clue as to what it really means. In John 12, he uses it again, 32, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then it goes on to say in verse 33, He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So he's talking actually about the cross. 
when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. Well, how does that work? When he's crucified, then they will know that he's the Messiah. Did they all come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ when they saw him on the cross? Just making some noise here. Uh, we'll see that in a second. That he is speaking. He is speaking. Well, we'll get that into a second. Let's, let's move on to the next verse because I, I want to save some things for the application. In verse 30, he's, many believed in him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And that's pretty much exegeting the, the passage there. We get to the end there, and it seems like people are believing in him. He says that you will know, and some people are starting to accept Christ right then and there. We, we want to see what happens to these new believers, but that's going to have to wait till next week's sermon. So come back and see next week's sermon to see what happens with these new believers. Okay, so let's get back into this. Let's get into what we've covered already and start to draw out some application for us. And we'll start to look at how some of these things hopefully apply to us. Because this is, this could be a very confusing passage. And some of you may have been listening to me try to explain it. It kind of like, I don't know, like, is this, is this, how does this really affect me in my life? I mean, some of these arguments are a little bit confusing. Let's look at it. I have, I have four different ones, four different points of application. We've got abide in his word, verse 19. God is sovereign, verse 28. He is the light of the world. And courage to say what is not popular. We'll see all of these. So first, abide in his word. In verse 19, he says, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then again, John 5, 38 through 39, we already read it, but I'll mention it again. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one who he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have life. It is they that bear witness of me. And I think one of the biggest things that characterizes certain people that I've met in the church that, that, that discourages me is when I see people and they know the Bible so, so well. They can discuss systematic theology, soteriology, uh, 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 all kinds of ologies, right? And yet, when you talk about spiritual things, they seem to, to recoil a bit. Like when you really start to talk about what God is teaching you and, and, and how you're repenting and how you're starting, to, you're starting to grow in grace and maybe how you've been witnessing to others, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to resonate with them. They're willing to articulate uh, specifics of theological positions and debate them and all the issues of the day that split churches. But when it comes to actually talking about and loving God's word and walking it out, you kind of lose them. They seem completely uninterested in the big picture of self-sacrifice, suffering, proclaiming the gospel, being truly Christ-like, godly, and seeing people saved. That's exactly what Christ is seeing in these people. They were in the church back then, the Old Testament church, community of, of believers, and they're in the church at large today. Fortunately, I don't think I know anybody in this church that's like that. I used to know a lot of people in a lot of different churches that are like that, but it's very encouraging when you come to somebody and they may not be able to perfectly parse out systematic theology, but you see them actually growing 
and applying the word of God to their lives. That's the type of person that recognizes who Jesus is. That's the type of person that that recognizes when the Holy Spirit is moving. That's the type of person that when they hear Jesus speak, even in the Old Testament, they they make the confession that Jesus or or that, that Peter made, thou art the Christ, the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the the sin of the the world. These two different types of people still exist today. How How do we be the one that has the word abiding? In our in our hearts, how do we be that? How do how do we become that if we're not like that? John 15 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So it's the mind, will, and the emotions, just as I was was speaking of before. It sounds like it might be a little bit legalistic, doesn't it? If you keep my commandments, I thought we didn't earn salvation. But we're not talking about earning salvation. We're talking about abiding. And abiding comes as we walk in relationship with Christ, as we obey the commandments to love God with all our mind, soul, and strength and, and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's where, that's where the Holy Spirit starts to fill us. That's where the Holy Spirit starts to guide us. That's where the Holy Spirit starts to empower us for ministry. That's where the Holy Spirit starts to speak to us. And, we, and, and, we're, and we're walking in wisdom and not just our own understanding. Have you ever walked throughout an entire week and you just see yourself falling and falling and, and, and you're confused about what God wants you to do? That's not his will. He wants us to walk in victory. He wants us to walk in wisdom as we look at his word and then walk it out in both love and understanding and with purpose. We all have to grow in that. I see, I see myself all the time falling in this, but I also see those, those times in my life where it's so encouraging. I see a day where I pray about everything. Every time I come to an issue, I pray about it. And the Lord gives me wisdom. I'm like, well, that's not what I was about to do. But after prayer, it seems as if the Lord is guiding me to do this and to, and to respond in love. And that's, that's when I'm like, ah, it's happening, Lord. Please, please let it continue because that's where joy is released. That's where, that's where empowerment from the Holy Spirit is released. That's where it is. Number two, courage to say what is not popular. We've all failed in this. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in this. You cannot just say, well, I'm just going to make up for it uh, with bravado. I'm just going to testify to the world that I love Jesus. And when that moment comes, you may just blow it, not say anything. This, is, this happened to me. It's happened to me. But the courage to say what's not popular when you know that it's probably going to be offensive to some people comes from him. In verse 24, we see Jesus being very straightforward. He says, I am he. I told you you would die in your sins, right? There may be a time in your relationships that you have to say some really tough things where you're going to have to confront somebody who's a believer, not walking as such, or you're going to have to confront somebody who is saying that they're a believer, but they have no fruit and you know for not, not for sure, but you, you, have, you have concerns. Let's put it that way. Living in absolute unrepentant sin. Or an unbeliever who is 
trying to say that they're a Christian, but they're not sure they're waffering back and forth. And it's time for them to understand the gravity of the situation. And you know that it's time to speak. I'm not talking about casting pearls before swine and, 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 and trying to force your beliefs on other people. I'm talking about those situations where you know full well that God is leading you to say something and to say something that's not necessarily going to be super popular. That has to be done in love. First Corinthians 13, if we do anything without love, we become a, a, a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal, right? But are you so shy and polite that nobody even knows that you're a Christian? That can be really convicting. That can be really convicting. And if that's you, pray to God that he would, he would give you opportunities to witness and that you would have the, the courage. The courage comes from him. But that courage has to be there. It was in Christ and it has to live in his followers. God is sovereign. Number three, verse 28. When you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I kind of left this as a cliffhanger and I didn't even explain it. How in the world can he say this to Pharisees that were going to watch him crucify, crucified and then mock him as he dies? And then afterwards, they were still not going to re- receive him. They were going to persecute his disciples. And they were going to go on in this. How can he say that? Well, the fact is that they will one day have to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We know, I'm going to read again John 12, uh, uh, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There's a drawing there. So many of those people did believe in Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, many of the priests came to, um, to believe in Jesus Christ that we see in, in Acts. So some of them were drawn and they came willingly. But then there's Philippians 2. 10 through 11, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. You have a choice. You can either come now willingly, or you will come one way or the other. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those two, those are the two things. Those are the two things that, that are set before us. You can either come rejoicing that Christ has forgiven you for your sin, or you can come on the last day when all the, the living and the dead will stand before Christ. Everybody will be resurrected, some unto life, some unto death, and all, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So in a sense, Jesus is absolutely 100% correct because based on the cross, when he is lifted up, now it's sealed that on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's partially fulfilled. The lifting up has occurred. And they will know. They will know. Everyone, every Jew, every Gentile, every atheist, every person who believes in God, all will come and bow before the king. Number four, light of the world. Bringing it back all the way to the beginning. Verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. Notice that it does not say, well, walk in the light. You might, you might think that that's what it was about to say. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but whoever follows me will walk in light. But it doesn't say that. It says, we'll have the light of life. That's even greater. They'll have the light. You will possess the life. The life will be within you, shining out of you. You're not walking in darkness because you yourself have and possess the light. Did you know that Jesus left and then sent his spirit to live inside of us? You are the light of the world now. Did you know that? You're the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Philippians 2, 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. First Thessalonians 5, 5, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And there are many other verses that can be brought up to show that we now are the light. We now are testifying of the truth. Have, have we learned to see ourselves like that? Is our identity all wrapped up in being light? Or is our identity all wrapped up in our problems? Our identity all wrapped up in who we are now in Christ? Or is it all wrapped up in what we're not? And what we're trying to avoid? Who does God say you are? Who are you? Do you feel like a failure being a light? Why does it seem like so often we're powerless? Sometimes I feel like we feel like we're powerless because we gravitate toward the negative. So if I'm victorious in an area, yeah, but this, yeah, but this. We witness to somebody that come to the Lord, yeah, but their friend didn't. And so we're just naturally going to what we're not and how we failed, right? Some of that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We can bring that to Christ and have forgiveness. But sometimes we look at our lives and it's like, I don't see any of that. I just see weakness. All I see is failure after failure after failure after failure. To the point where sometimes it almost feels like it's normal in the church to feel broken down, discouraged, and powerless. And I believe that it doesn't have to be that way. I believe that. I, is there a place of revival? Is there a place of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is there a place of being filled with power? Is there a pla place of being filled with boldness? Is there a place of being uh, victorious over sins and vices? Is there a place where we reach the full uh, uh, a stature of maturity where now when temptation hits us, we used to fall, but now the temptation can't get a hold of us. We've grown past that. Not sinless perfection. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this world just starting to fall away from us to the point where the only way the enemy can truly stop us is to throw us in jail, have us martyred. You see that in the New Testament? The only way to stop Stephen, there was only one, right? There was nothing stopping that man. He was filled with the Holy Ghost and filled with boldness and they could not withstand his, his wisdom. Whereas a lot of times we don't even know what to say. I don't know what to say. What would I say? Is there a place where we see the Holy Spirit 
empowering us with boldness to witness in truth, in love, overcoming not just our own sin, but overcoming the world. Is there a place? I believe there is a place of that. I believe that. I'm not always seeing it. Sometimes I see glimpses of it in other people and in myself. I see glimpses of it. I'm like, that could grow. That could, I could see that actually turning the city upside down. But I don't think we'll turn the city upside down the way we are. I don't. I think that there needs to be a submission to him on a level that we haven't understood before. A submission to his word in obedience that we haven't understood before. Where we come to him and we ask God, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit like you never have before. That's what I believe. Maybe wrong? I don't think so. Because we've seen this in other, in, in other t- points in history, not just in the Bible, but throughout the church age. That, that believers coming to God, praying to him for his presence, step out in boldness and in power and in revival. I want to make sure I don't miss anything. Well, God make us so, right? It starts with asking. You have not because ye ask not. And if you don't believe it's possible, then you probably won't ask. And if you don't believe it possible, if you do ask, you'll ask because somebody else is asking and you're asking not in faith. You're asking because it sounds good. You're asking because I guess I got to pray about something that none of this let me just say that none of this is meant to, to in any way discourage or sound judgmental. None of this, all of this, 100% of it is to make you feel encouraged, is to look forward to the next day, to get up tomorrow and say, dear Lord, this is a day that you have given me. Praise the Lord that I can walk in victory. 100% of this is for you to feel loved by God. And I work on making it, this, this, this sermon is, is, is meant to be a love letter to you all. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to love you through the Holy Spirit so that you feel, so that you feel nothing but, but encouragement. And, and, I, and I hope that comes across because that is absolutely my goal. And I believe, I believe, I believe that God is going to bless us in that. Walking in faith, praying in faith, stepping out in obedience through the power of his Holy Spirit, having our mind, will, and emotions transformed so that when the world sees us, they see someone different than what they've ever seen before. And a lot of times, even when you're struggling and walking in imperfection, they're going to come to you and say, I see something different in you. And you're like, really? I feel so imperfect. But they're seeing it. They're seeing the Holy Ghost working in that. I believe in that, don't you? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. The worship team is going to come. And um, as they come, um, we want to pray for that to happen. We want to pray for our um, we want to pray for our faith to grow. And we want to we want to pray for our obedience to grow, our love to grow. And um Let's pray. Dearest Lord, we thank you so, so, so much for your Holy Spirit giving us faith and giving us 
the things that, that we, can't, we can't manifest these things on our own, Lord. We can't do them on our own. We can't walk the way you walked. We can't um, speak the way you spoke. We can't live the way you lived unless you empower us, Lord. And we pray, um, Holy Spirit, come. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we, we thank you so much for the fact that you're a good God that listens to our prayers and that, and that we know that you care even more than we do on these things. Lord, you, you are just waiting to shower us with your grace and you're waiting to come over us and, and to show us how powerful you can be on our behalf. God bless us in that. And we pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.